0: Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share, and in their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. This is episode 139, and today we'll be chatting with Stephen Ufford, the founder and CEO of Trulio. Stephen decided to become an entrepreneur after high school in order to pursue his idea of enabling online credit reports, after seeing firsthand how out of date the process was. He launched iQuery in 2000, and within three years, it was acquired. Following his mantra of creating impact, Stephen went on to create two more companies following his early success, both within very similar markets. These startups were also later acquired. Today, Stephen is working on his fourth startup, Trulio, which has raised over $25 million to create the leading global identity verification service and provide instant electronic identity and address verification for over 4 billion people in 60 plus countries. Stephen joins us to share his story, how he got into startups, what it's been like building four startups in the fintech industry, his advice on how to approach fundraising, why he focuses not on product market fit, but rather on creating impact, what it's been like building a startup in Vancouver, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet at us at HackToStart. Drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited uh, to have you on the show and to get to hear about you know, your amazing story and journey and, into startups and, and what you're doing today. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you study?
1: Yeah, well, I, um, I'm from Vancouver, BC. I was not quite born here, but almost. I moved here as an infant from uh, Ontario, so don't really remember the East Coast. So Vancouver raised. And um, what did I study? I did not study much. I actually did not go to college. So I right out of high school, my father gave me uh, an ultimatum. I could go off to university or college and uh, he would pay the way or I could pursue my big idea, which I actually came up with in high school for my first startup uh, selling credit reports online. And uh, but then if I pursued that, I'd be on my own. So I've been, uh, attending this, the school of hard knocks since really a teenager. Uh, I can't, I can't claim to know a lot about the world, but boy, do I know consumer data. It's been a, a long time in the space.
0: That's awesome. That's a pretty crazy ultimatum as a, as a way to get started.
1: Best thing anyone's ever done for me, you know, at, at least for me, it was a, uh, I have my own son now, and I can see the wisdom of that telling your kid, you know, yeah, pursue your own dreams, but they're your dreams. So if you want to take the the unbeaten path, you've got a bushwhack. and that's exactly what I did. And I, don't, I think if he had told me anything else, I probably wouldn't be here today. So very, very grateful for that.
0: Very interesting. So where did the passion for, I guess entrepreneurships and later on tech startups come from? Was your was your you know your father also an entrepreneur or anybody in the family?
1: Well, my father was and wasn't. He's done both. I think it was uh, somewhat, at least in my case, fairly inborn. I was always very into my own little businesses. As you always hear, kind of that typical story. I don't just mean the lemonade stand. I had a paper route since I was six, seven years old. And I uh, very, very young age into independence is, is what I think my parents would say. Often independence requires a, you know, your own income, your own job, and pursuing your own dreams. So I, I was a little entrepreneur from day one. As far as tech went, I really think I became a tech entrepreneur because, well, partly by accident and um, partly just because it it really is the when you look at at least the span of my career, what's possible in the world of tech. I'm always pursuing impact. You know, what's the? I, I firmly believe that as an entrepreneur. The, best thing you can do with your time rather than pursue money or product or even pain in, in the market is actually impact. The more people you impact, the more customers you impact. And I believe that if you do that, a large scale, and increasingly larger scale, that success and all the other pieces will follow. Uh, tech gives you that ability to do that, not just within your own city, like maybe a traditional business, but globally. So even a little startup like ours, a, a few years old, uh, has global customers and a global product and You know, there were 60 60 markets and counting, and I think if you're pursuing impact, it gives me that that avenue. So that's the why of today. The why of yesterday, when when I fell into tech, it was purely by accident. My first startup was because I was refused a cell phone along with a friend of mine at the time. We were both getting our first cell phones, and for some reason, mine did not go through. I was not approved for a cell phone plan, and that's when I learned about my credit report. And I was 17 at the time. And they said, well, you don't you don't have a very good credit report. And I said, what's that? And like any kid, uh, I you know, at the time I went online to figure out what that was and found a form that you could order a credit report online. And much to my disbelief and dismay, that credit report would be snail mailed to you. And I thought, how lame is that? You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's 2000 (laughs) or whatever it was. Surely this can be uh, delivered online. That's how I started in tech purely by accident.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. That's honestly a great journey of, you know, you went from high school and kind of leaped into entrepreneurship. But could you walk us through a little bit more about this credit reporting startup that you had created and what that journey was like going through it for the first time?
1: yeah so as i kind of alluded to there it was you know a startup that was focused on getting consumers a copy of their credit report of course we're all quite familiar with that now but at the time no one was really doing that online um, it was all by mail and it was called iquery meaning short term and uh, one pattern you'll see with all my startups is i always go for the cheap domain names so that one was spelled iQUIRI for internet inquiry in the credit bureau world, when you pull your credit file, that's called an inquiry on, on your credit file. So that's that's where that name comes from. Very very British, very Canadian. And uh, you know, we started that myself and my co-founder from high school, very very young, as I said. And within about three years, we had had it sold. It wasn't a terribly complicated business, but uh, for the time, it was quite cutting edge. You could go onto our website and put in your personal information and a credit card number to pay us a few bucks, and we would deliver your credit report to you in just a few seconds. And at that time, it was very novel. So uh, once that business got going, this is the the beauty of tech. Here I was in Vancouver, Canada, and a big company based in California noticed it. That's the beauty of the internet. And within a year of them noticing it, they had bought the company. And, and now it's part of a big juggernaut down in the US called freecreditreport.com, which has been a very large business down there for a, a long time.
2: That's amazing. So, so what was it like building a startup back in 2000? Very different from today. I
1: think tech, even the term tech is very mainstream now because of course we all carry tech in our hands for about 99% of our time with, with our mobile phones. So we all get it, but back then it wasn't really a career at least for if you were a, you know, a, a young person and you told your family I'm going into tech, that really wasn't something in Vancouver. There wasn't much of an investment community. There wasn't much of a tech scene yet at all. And certainly the type of support that we see now, whether it's incubators or angel investors, there, there, there wasn't a real big talent pool here in Vancouver for that kind of technology, at least, you know, consumer Internet. So, you know, going back to the first versus the fourth, obviously in Canada and probably the world, there's been a huge ramp up in the sector. And so, you know, we see lots of opportunity to build large scale tech companies in many cities, including Vancouver now, which maybe were not there when I did my first one. And I think, you know, if I were to pick the big three things uh, that are different, capital, people. And the third is probably more accepting is, you know, social acceptance. I think that, as I said, it wasn't really a viable career path for most. And so as a result, there was no capital investment and there was no resource or people to invest in in Vancouver. And now that's all changed. It's very competitive and increasingly huge industry here.
2: It's great to see how, how Vancouver has evolved the, over the years and, you know, and companies like Slack being built and, and kind of housed out in Vancouver and, and a lot of studios and other companies. So it's, it's great to see, you know, the startup scene grow there.
1: Yep. If Canada is going to have a, um, you know, place in the world and if we're going to stop you know, selling our natural resources, it seems like technology, in particular financial technology or regulatory technology with our banking system being one of the world's largest and best. Seems like a good fit for Canada. So I think it's a good time for us to invest in these type of technologies as a, as a country and uh, really get behind the industry. If we want to grow, you know, hopefully a replacement one day for selling all of our natural resources. That's kind of where I where my mindset. It's not going to happen overnight. Of course, it's a huge, huge displacement. But I think technology at least has the potential to do something like that.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, so as you mentioned, after three years of building Acquiry, it was acquired by Experian. Uh, what was this acquisition process like for you?
1: Well, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, any any uh, <laughs> process of selling your 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 business, large or small requires a lot of uh, paperwork and a, it's a big emotional roller coaster. It's on, it's off, it's in between. Uh, in our, our case, it took almost a year to, to, to get the deal done. It was extraordinarily long, but it's also very exhilarating and exciting. So especially when it's your first one, there's nothing like it, right? Something you built kind of with your bare hands, other people are taking interest in and you know, want it to be part of their story. And I think that's really exciting. Uh, I remember being very stressed out, very hungry all the time because you never have any appetite because every day is such a up and down. um, And but also extremely I felt more alive during that time than I think I ever have in my life. It's a very uh, it's a life changing moment for you. We were broke for so long. And then, you know, to have this fairly large exit at least from our perspective to uh, materialize and come to fruition it's a life changing event that you and your children and your children's children your parents and your brothers and sisters they never forget it so it's a a huge moment and it was a huge moment in our lives so it was wrought with a lot of emotion and a lot of stress and a lot of excitement but uh, that's what life is all about and that's actually you know why you do it not to exit but to have those those peaks and valleys because that's what makes you feel alive
2: So from there, you continued down the path of entrepreneurship and ended up building two other startups in the fintech space, both of which also ended up having acquisitions. So can you tell us a bit more about these startups and what were some of the biggest lessons you learned from them?
1: Yeah, well, um, usually, you know, I really believe success is built on success. So like I mentioned at the top of the show there, that uh, I'm kind of a one trick pony. I I didn't uh, I don't have a broad experience uh, base outside of consumer information and that type of technology. So when I sold the first one to a credit bureau, I learned a lot about credit bureau businesses and big data aggregators. As a result of that, it kind of inspired me to you know, up here in Canada, I, I learned through that process that this same acquirer really wanted a lot more than just a little business that sold credit reports online, but they actually wanted to have credit bureaus, con, you know, consumer databases in as many countries as they could, including Canada. So we, myself and my co-founder, took some of the proceeds of that first exit and reinvested into ourselves and our second idea and decided to, you know, build a, really take a national credit bureau, a, a stab at a national credit bureau. <laughs> And um, within just a few years, we had to learn all about that business, build it, which involves getting information on consumers from many banks and many credit unions and all, all kinds of sources and putting it in, in a big database and getting a license to do that and um, then selling that data back to customers. And so that that process took us over three years and then much to our delight, the same acquirer that. Came along on on iQuery, came and bought this startup which was called NCB Northern Credit Bureaus, and uh, and acquired that 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 business from us. So we were uh, very lucky on that one. We kind of predicted that one, as I said, from the first one. But uh, I don't think I, anyone expected it to get, to go as as well as it did in terms of timing and clockwork. It was just as we predicted. But we learned a lot about the business, you know, not just selling somebody else's data, but actually building that bureau. Uh, and then, you know, standing it up and productizing it. it is a big, a big undertaking. We were still fairly young; we were, you know, in our early to mid twenties at the time, so we didn't have a lot of experience yet. Uh, so that was a, a big learning lesson for us, and that that exit helped us with our third, which um, one of the the biggest customers we had at the time. Was a big online dating website, and at that time they were in, I believe, six or I can't—it's either six or sixteen countries. It was um, a very uh, a very global product, and they were having a problem, as we all are very aware of now, with fake profiles. And uh, this was around 2007, uh, maybe I think, 2006, 2007, and. They were growing very rapidly around the world and they were looking for access to identity information to kind of make this problem go away. They had had some bad experiences with some of their daters and some bad people and were trying to implement identity verification globally. And really there was nothing at all around that we could help them with. And it was very kind of sad for me because I, There was a company from Silicon Valley and they really wanted to work with us and I was excited about it. And in the end, we didn't have anything for them. And so I always vowed Mm -hmm. that once I was done with this um, credit bureau, I would go on to build something. And just when that was starting to happen, that very same company as well as a few others got hacked and there there were big breaches. There was about two or three at that time. So we all know what, what breaches are now, right? They're when companies' databases about their customers, particularly consumers and people, get stolen what was going on at that time in the world was nobody really knew what to do about it it was a new thing and it sounded a lot scarier to us we've all kind of become desensitized to it now but back then when people's personal information was stolen from a company it was a really scary big thing so there was a need and you know and by the way what that results in is when your information is stolen very commonly it's used by bad guys to get credit and so they'll um you know, go and open a credit card in your name and rack it up and then disappear. And then you get the bill. And so one of the things we had learned from our time at the credit bureaus was you could monitor the information. So if someone was applying for credit in your name, you could send them an email or a text message and it would say, hey, someone's trying to apply for credit. We stood a service like that up alongside of an insurance product that if you did have your identity stolen would make you whole as well as access to like a professional investigator to help you sort it all out. And we bundled that together and it's called identity restoration. So restoring your identity back to its gold standard, if it's stolen from you. And uh, that, that product may be a little early for its time. Um, it was actually a partnership with a big insurance company, but it actually did very well. We ran it for a few years. Ours was really, again, the data side of it, the credit report monitoring side, that was our, our contribution and it was a global product. It was in, you know, three, three countries. Then they bought it out from us. Maybe I was a little early on that one. I sold it to them in 2009, our, our piece. And then very shortly thereafter, the, all, the breaches started to happen in uh, much faster frequency, not only in the United States, but around the world. And now, of course, we all know that that is a very big problem in the world. And so that business has grown exponentially since we sold it. But you don't always have a crystal ball. But the, you know, all of those, as you can see, a pattern in went from selling credit reports and consumer information online to consumers and then building that information up and then eventually monitoring that information. And that really introduced me to the ideal of identity, which is, of course, where where truly is focused today.
0: Yeah, that's a great recap. I was actually going to do that as a transition because, you know, it's amazing to see all the different things that you've been able to accomplish in sort of a linear fashion. But obviously, looking back, it becomes much clearer to see. So on that note, today you're the founder and CEO of your fourth startup, Trulio. I know you mentioned it a little bit, but what is Trulio and what really motivated you to launch it?
1: Yeah, so um, Trulio is a global identity verification uh, company. You know, it's real focus on um, not just either covering Canadians or Americans. It, actually, all seven billion of us on the planet with a digital identity, a trusted digital identity. And, you know, the, it's a lofty goal. You know, going back, we've just heard about my roots and how you know access to trusted information on consumers, so that they can be known when they want to be, whether it's on a dating website or something else, is very, very hard to do at scale. Uh, we've just you know heard me talk about that, and so that that problem was the one I wanted to attack. But it has much bigger implications. In the 2016, 17, or even 11, when I started, it was the concept of adding this tr- this layer of trust to the internet, and. That is, you know, great for commerce and you know all the things that we like to do online. You know, using Airbnb or uh, you know, leasing out your car to somebody that you don't know. Whatever the case is, uh, that's great. But what really inspired me beyond that was also the real impact of when you go from we cover about four billion people today. So it's still we've made huge progress in the last four years, covering over sixty countries with this type of information and lots of. Customers like to use us for things like opening bank accounts and merchant accounts, that kind of stuff. We're very good at that. But where it gets really exciting is when we start on the next three billion people, all the people living in poverty, all the people that are off the grid today. in particularly in emerging markets where entrepreneurs like me, because they can't be trusted or known, can't get access to things like microfinancing to start a small business or um, are still walking 45 minutes or an hour each way every day just to pay a light bill. Why? Because once again, they can't have a bank account, which means that they can't pay things online. And it just goes back like a tooth for those people. And, you know, here we complain about being tracked and having our identity stolen. And on that other side of the coin, those people complain about not even being known. You know, they're they're not tracked at all. There's no record of their existence. And so we're very focused on trying to figure out now how can now, now that we have this identity ecosystem of over four billion people that's accessible through a single API and you can verify someone's identity in, a, in all those countries in a, less than five seconds on average. How can we do that for the other three billion people? And that's where the real mission comes in. It's um, you know, a big one for sure, but it has huge social impact and that's really, on my fourth startup, what I'm focused on now is how can I touch as many lives as possible with what I build? And that takes you know work into the realm of life's work. And I think you know, at my age now, and as I've been fortunate to have had some success in the space, that's really what I'm focused on with Trulio is um, making it a a global tool for anybody on the planet that wants to be known for whatever reason that might be, whether it's for Paying that light bill, opening a bank account or whatever the case may be, wherever you are, you should be able to use the Internet and your mobile phone uh, as a way to be trusted. And I think if we can accomplish that, then the Internet itself can become a whole other type of economic engine that uh, can really change many,
0: many lives. Yeah, it's an amazing it's an amazing mission to see that, you know, you guys are are taking on and, you know, just how far you've come in, in such a short period of time. It's it's really incredible.
1: Yeah, we, we, like I said, with a lot of luck and um, some great new technologies. I mean, people always ask me, "Hey, why hasn't anybody done this before?" That's probably the number one question I get. If it's so, it's, cl- it's clear to anybody that this is obviously needed in the world. Doesn't matter who you are, you can you can see that everybody gets the concept of needing to trust people online. But why hasn't anyone done it? And there's a few a few factors for that. In case you're wondering, the cloud is overused as that term is has really made a huge impact on. uh, the space that we're in, you know, even going back 10 years ago, to really build out a network of hundreds and hundreds of data providers. So, you know, the way Trulio works is we have a marketplace of, or a a network, however you want to define it, of existing databases that are run by third parties. And this might be your cell phone company, your bank, your utility company, uh, relationships that you have in your day-to-day life that, those parties have been doing business with you and already know you and you being able to leverage those relationships to start new relationships with other third parties that may not know you and using kind of that that chain of trust like we all do now hey the concept of friends of friends is not new to anybody anymore is it no we we all know how mutual friends work thank god and you know that that type of trust model that that social model of trust can can be applied online if we use data about you and really paint a picture of you with your permission and your consent about who you are, where you are, and if you can be trusted. And what that means for the internet is, is that we start to mimic real life more and more. I always give the analogy in our space when people say, "Oh, it seems quite complicated," and I say, "Yeah, it is to accomplish, but the problem is simple. When you go to a family picnic, if it's you know, if you're out there, at, you know, the backyard of your great aunt's house, and everybody in the house and in the yard is your close family." you're not going to be overly concerned about leaving your your purse or your wallet out somewhere. You know everybody there, you know who they are, you've known them for a long time. There's a real atmosphere of safety and trust there. Conversely, if you go to a house party down the block where you don't know anybody, you're probably not going to feel secure doing something like that. And that, to me, is very representative of the difference between the Internet and offline life. So there is no real way today um, that I could see before Trulio to... Prove who you are to the same degree and be trusted to the same degree as you can be when you want to be offline in you know your everyday life. So that's really the mission that we're trying to do. I think a lot of the, the answers to some of these questions can be found when we simply look at what we do in the real world and try and find ways to leverage those models online as well.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. And so I guess along those lines and, and as a means to kind of achieve that goal, Trulio has raised over $23 million in funding. So do you have any insights about you know what that process was like for you that you could share with other entrepreneurs?
1: Yes, I do. In fact, I I won't bore you with them all today. But, um, you know, I've been very open about the fact that I think I may hold the Canadian Entrepreneur's title these days for the most number of no's uh, ever received for a funding pitch. So in 2011, I pitched over 100 VCs in Silicon Valley before I got my yes. And at the time, amongst all my peers, I I was holding the the, that's a lot. That's a lot of no's. I I think I was holding the, the gauntlet in the group. But everybody's experience is different. Mine was also very positive. People say, Oh, what a horrible experience that was raising that that first check. You know, we raised two million dollars. Um, with just a prototype and a couple early customers and that was a lot of money i mean for uh, it's other people's money and you're asking people that haven't known you for a long time to invest in your company and your idea and your dream and that's what's magical about silicon valley is a little nobody canadian entrepreneur can move down there uh, for a few months to get this done and see hundreds of like-minded people that want to take big risks and want to change the world and yes, most of them will not believe in your dream or or see the see what you see. But if you do it right and that this is the advice I give, those knows, if you're approaching it from the right way, can turn into a very, very powerful network of friends. And to this day, truly is now, as you said, actually raised a little over twenty five million dollars. I have not had to cold call a single investor this entire four years. And that's because that first time I went down there, I spent so much time pitching to those people that even though those were no's originally, they're always willing to hear you again and hear progress. And if you look at those as learning experiences and opportunities to build new relationships, then there's always an open door there. And it's, you know, a two-way door. Sometimes they ask me for, hey, what's, the next big thing coming out of Canada and sometimes I ask them and if you approach business that way in particular raising money I think that uh, you do yourself a real big favor down the line you you have a lot of people that will support you and it means that they don't always agree with you but um, you know enough that they respect you and uh, you can ask them for help and they can ask you for help and I really think that that is I want to see more of that in Vancouver and more of that in our community here because people always do try and duplicate Silicon Valley with economics, but the truth is, it, it is what it is because of that network. Most people in it are very like-minded that way and are always wondering how they can help the next guy. And I think that that's really the secret to to that to their success down there is, it's a very powerful group of smart people that are there for each other for, for, for the most part. And yes, it's competitive, but even with competitors, I've had more coffees with competitors in Silicon Valley than ever time in my entire career. And that's just because of everyone's cut from the same class. So truly as you know, millions that it's raised are a direct testament that anybody can do it. Anybody with that mindset can go and build the company of their dreams if they truly want to have impact and truly also want to be part of that type of network. Everyone has something to offer.
0: That's some, that's some really good advice that I don't think, you know, gets gets shared enough around. Uh, so it's really interesting to hear you, you know, speak to that and, and just the long term mindset about at least building the relationships, even if you still are getting a no, because you don't know what it'll turn into a few years down the down the road.
1: That's right. That's right. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a no. You should take that to heart and, and see, you know, if you can find some wisdom in there and, uh, you know, thank God for all those no's, because I can tell you what truly you is today is not what I thought it was going to be four years ago. Uh, or now it's almost five years, you know, five years ago where where I was still thinking about it, getting all that feedback, negative and positive, helped shape an idea into a business. And that's the best free advice anybody can ever give you, right?
0: Absolutely. And so what does your role as a CEO kind of entail for you, especially in this kind of industry? Like, what do you tend to focus on, on a daily basis? Or how do you go about structuring your days?
1: You know, I think it, it changes even over the course of a quarter, but today at least, you know, it's obviously very different from even a year ago, but today, at least for Truliu, what, what the CEO does here and what the founder does is about 50% of the time I'm focused on building up other teams. And I don't just mean hiring, but, um, you know, dipping in where I can and being a team member so that if people, you know, I, re, I we have uh, approaching about 50 employees here now, so we're still very early, but luckily because of that i have a view into what most people are trying to accomplish not only for the company but for themselves so i really view my role here at least for a big part of it as trying to help each individual person reach those goals and then in turn the company reaches its goals collectively the The founder of the company, I think that's should always be a big part of their role. Now, I recognize you can't do that as you grow to a very big company, but you can do that in other ways. But today, my day is I spend most of it wheeling my little IKEA chair around the office uh, and sitting in on the different teams so that I can, uh, you know, pick up on what they're talking about and also uh, support them in any way that I can with advice or even getting down, rolling my sleeves up, and doing, you know, work. And then the other side is really uh, about direction and vision of the company. I spend a lot of time thinking about where tracking back to our goal of 7 billion people and how we might accomplish that. You have to balance your own dreams as well as we have customers now. So also with their needs and finding common ground and where the company should ultimately go and invest its capital and uh, it's a lot of uh, thinking that needs to go into that. In fact, I was just sharing with someone that I've started walking to work every day, which gives me a, you know, a good 45 minutes a day alone time to kind of think and ponder about these things. Because it is really critical at a growth stage to make the right turns as often as you can.
2: You know, of course, that's amazing. I, I've just recently been walking to, to work myself. I've recently launched a studio and, and it's about a 30 minute walk. And I just love being able just to walk places and think about, you know, growth of companies and really what to do maybe for that week and the upcoming months. So it's awesome that you're kind of doing the same thing.
1: It's so great, isn't it? I mean, the key there is to keep your phone in your pocket, isn't it? <laughs>
2: it's if, true. You, if
1: you pull the phone out, then you might as well be at the office. But if you can keep <laughs> it in your pocket, then your mind starts wandering. And that's what it's all about. You, you want to give it that space. Before you get to work and be there for everybody else, it's really important for, you know, this is my advice to any founder: is that it's really important that you remain the founder and you remain at least one of the visionaries so that you can. But you do need that time alone, don't you? Away from your phone, away from the talk, away from the teams so that you can dream a little bit and make sure that uh, you're on the right track.
2: So true. So I know you shared a lot of great business and life advice so far, but if there was one message or something specific you could tell your younger self, what would it be?
1: Um, I mean, looking back uh, over the years, I know my there's probably two. I know my co-founder, Tanis likes to say, you know, enjoy the journey. That's her big uh, her big lesson over this many years. Um, I, of course, second that. But also another one for me is there are two two big lessons in, in at least two words. One, Perseverance. I learned that you're always going to be a dollar short a day late on, at least for me, on virtually every idea and every business that you build. It's always going to take more time and more money and more resources than you thought. So you got to be aware of that. Um, And two, I think humor. You know, when I look back on myself uh, across all all these opportunities and teams and companies, I like to think that the best moments, you know, no matter what you're working on, there's always time for a laugh. And if you can maintain a sense of humor through all the ups and downs, then all of a sudden, when you look back on it, it, you really do remember just the laughs and the you know the good times. And the more the more of that you create, the more you will remember. Because the human brain, of course, has a way of over time uh, kind of dissipating the negative, don't you find? You know, mm-hmm. you have a and it's very true of startups. All that all that stress and the hair loss and the great you know. It kind of dissipates and goes away, and you say, "Oh, wow, that was always fun." But if you can create real memories by keeping a sense of humor with your staff and your co-founders, and your, then the whole thing just becomes one big glorious adventure. And I think I wish I had realized that from number one. I think it took me to number three to realize that it's totally okay to be a goofball. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you're when you're doing this, regardless of what kind of work, it's serious work, but it doesn't mean you can't laugh the whole way along yeah you know, it's really important yeah. and to maintaining health god you hear about these founders in their 30s that you know pass away you know after selling their company nobody wants that
2: no of course not yeah uh,
1: yeah and i think they just probably needed to laugh a little more
2: <laughs> i really love that i'm going to definitely share that with the with the team tomorrow and we'll we'll try to integrate that in, into our weekly goals it's just uh, you know inject humor and laughter into to what we do so that's awesome
1: as much as possible we're good
2: so to shift gears a little bit, um, what are some most recent apps or tools or just like software that you've uh, come across or really love using on a daily basis?
1: It changes, so there's you know a number of, I'm actually a list guy, so uh, I know I have a couple of fellow founders I've read um, here and there that like to make lists. I, I run something called, now this isn't gonna make anybody ooh and ah over a new app, but I have to tell you that it'll influence my, my selection. Um, up until recently, my lists were on paper. So I always run a top 20 list and I keep it in my pocket of things that I'm working on at any one time because if I don't, I forget. Um, and recently I transitioned uh, that list to Evernote. <laughs> so it's not a a very uh, cutting edge new new tool, but it's new for me. I've started using Evernote to keep my my top 20 list at, on my phone. That has been fairly life-changing because my top 20 list is not just a single piece of paper anymore, but I, I've started crossing out tasks that I've done. And I can actually scroll through pages and pages of lists now, all in one long thing I've done in the last couple of years. And that that continues to be my, my go-to source of control over my life. That one, and then there's, um. this is only because I've started getting into the sales side of things. So we're big, uh, we use Salesforce here, but shout out to the people at Close.io. So I find Salesforce to be very usable, but also have a lot of complexity to it. And I'm not a professional sales guy. So the complexity sometimes gets to me and I've really enjoyed using this this new close.io interface. I think it's very simple and makes sales really straightforward for a guy like me that needs it to be. it, It has all the things you need and none of the stuff you don't, at least for a company our size. And I just really love it. So I've been telling all my friends recently, you gotta take a look. So shout out to those
0: guys. That's awesome. We've actually had uh, a few of uh, a few of the team members from Close.io on the podcast, uh, Stelly and, and Phil. Uh, they're they're awesome folks, and uh, yeah, the, the tool is really really cool.
1: Oh no way! There you go. Well, there you, there there goes the power of tech again. Everybody's always one degree of separation. Well, good. I'm glad. So kudos to those guys because it really is great. Yeah,
2: exactly. That's funny. I just looked it up, and it was actually Stelly was episode seventy three. So that was a while, that was a while ago. Wow! But you have to check it out. Yes, uh,
1: please check it out. Highly recommend.
2: So do you have any recommendations on some great content that you come across lately, either a book, video or a blog post?
1: Yes. Well, I, I mean, this is it's not something recent, um, but it's more recent to what I've been recommending to people. So for a long time, I, I recommended, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs come to me with uh, this is a little cliche, not that it's in any way bad for the author, but everyone knows Tim Ferriss now, the four hour work week of course, right? But I was actually one of the, I read that when it first came out years and years ago before it was a hit. And so I always have these young entrepreneurs coming to me with these uh, lifestyle businesses that really were not meant for venture backing and they're not that type of business. So I would always recommend that as more of a manual, uh, but I've stopped doing that now because there's a new book and it is called The Go-Giver. It's a very small book. It's you know uh, less than a hundred pages. But it is the story of impact, and we you know recently. Truly, you took an investment from American Express. In fact, it was Amex's first investment in a Canadian company ever, I believe. And as part of that investment last year, we I had to pitch to the CEO of the company, and I had a chance to meet him and have dinner with him. And he's just a lovely guy. And he said something that has actually been one of the finer points in my life. In affecting my own business strategy, and thus the recommendation for The Go-Giver. My father had, rem- had recommended that book to me in my teens, and it didn't have the impact until now. And it really is the story of impact in that the more people you touch, like I said at the top of the show here, um, the more successful you'll be. And The Go-Giver is all about that, that narrative and that if you just focus on that, everything will come your way. And you know, Ken, the CEO of American Express, was saying to me that, um, you know, that's what he has always focused on. And this is a guy that's mentor is Henry Kissinger, I think. And he played ball with Obama, that kind of thing. And I just found that very inspirational. And uh, I've, it affected me in such a way that in the last year, I've it reminded me of that book my father gave me a long time ago. And I found it in my bookshelf and read the inscription. And actually, my own father had said something like that to me at the time. And now I've been telling a lot of young entrepreneurs, trying to save them the decades that I missed, that if you really do pursue that, things will go your way. Um, you'll, you'll get what you need and you'll be fulfilled and happy. And I think that that book, if I had read it again at the right time, it would have saved me a lot of years of strife, of, of chasing the wrong thing. So there's another one. Highly recommend The Go-Giver.
0: Love it. I haven't heard of it uh, before, but we'll definitely link to it. And uh, I'm going to go uh, check it out myself. Very good. Yes,
1: it's uh, it really um, encapsulates Silicon Valley's culture, as we were discussing before about asking others what you can do for them and, you know, really paying things forward. And I think it's just a nice, concise, quick read that many where all entrepreneurs are so busy that it's not an in-depth self-help book. It just kind of set me in the right direction again, which I'm very grateful for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Short reads are, are always uh, a welcome site. <laughs> uh, so you can get back to, to work and stuff like that. But yeah, it's important right. to incorporate that kind of stuff into into your life. So I I know you've shared, you know, a lot of different things throughout the episode. But do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you know, you tend to live by or think about on the walks that that you you know would share with others?
1: Well, look, you know, for a guy that's done this a number of times, and has made probably more mistakes than the average guy, I would tell you that I was just telling actually some of the the kind of newbies around here today, a, a story of when I was young and I kind of lost my cool, you know, with, with a vendor and a, a customer. A, anyway, whatever situation you find yourself in, I'm sure I'll be thinking about this on the way home again today. You never want to forget that apart from people that are actually working on curing cancer. But when you're doing tech, no matter how noble your mission or how important your business is, or this is our life's work, that you know the people around you at the company or the customers or the, even the competitors are just people with similar dreams. And um, you always want to make sure that, that the way that you approach that is consistent with how you want to be seen later. I'll give you an example of that. On my first one, I was way too into the business side of things and sometimes forgot the courtesies and the diplomacy that's needed for especially a particularly young man running a company. And I look back on those years and I wasn't a terrible person, but I wasn't as um, thoughtful as I probably should have been with everybody. And I, I regret those times because as you get older and you uh, do more and more of these, there's always another deal. You know, that's the takeaway. There's always going to be another deal for you to chase, another uh, mountain to climb with your business. But once you kind of treat somebody the wrong way or, you, you know, you don't forgive or forget or, you know, it's very hard to let that go later and you really do regret it. So that would be my my piece of advice I've been thinking about a lot. There's always going to be another deal around the corner. So remember that in your interactions on a daily basis with people, whether, you know, regardless of what, what role who is in. Because uh, chasing that one deal or that one business or whatever it is, that one funding round is not worth having a regret later on how you treated somebody in that moment. L- lots of my friends have those regrets, uh, especially, you know, in a high velocity startup, we sometimes get a little wound up and I'm, I'm guilty of that. So um, I think that that's something that probably most entrepreneurs can, can relate to.
0: Absolutely. I think that that's some tremendous, uh, tremendous advice. And I uh, couldn't think of a better way to end the episode. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was amazing to have you on the show. Wow,
1: guys, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, both Franco and Tyler, I really appreciate your time today.
0: Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, as well as on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do this show without your awesome support, so if you liked what you heard, feel free to share it on Twitter, or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and until next week.